Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nails It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our Citation Classics, which is a new thing that we have been doing this year in 2022. So please let us know how you, how you like it. How is it going? We have done two episodes before. This is going to be the third one, and this episode is fire i must say that now before i get a little bit into it please go ahead and hit the subscribe button if you haven't please leave us a review in itunes google play stitcher however you listen to us leave a review and leave a rating it would help out a bunch and then go and subscribe to the youtube channel the link to the youtube video for this episode is in the description now getting a little bit more into today's episode today we are doing the first of our shoulder and elbow citation classics yes the shoulder and elbow is another thing that we are doing and we have i mean this is really a great episode they go over anterior shoulder instability and part of this team we have dr john scanaliato who is a fourth year resident at the william beaumont army medical center slash texas tech university health sciences center and then we also have student dr Alexis Sandler, who literally crushed it. She will be an upcoming PGY one at the same um, at the same residency program as Dr. Scanaliato. And I mean, they they absolutely crushed this episode. I mean, I, I went back and listened to it and took some more notes on uh, on kind of some of the articles that they talked about. So without further ado or without further interruption, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are actually now tuned into our first ever uh, shoulder and elbow citation classics. Uh, which will be led by uh, Dr. John Scanaliato, as well as his accomplice or one of our fourth year medical students that are helping out Alexis Sandler. Both of you all, thank you all so much for being here. I'm really excited for this uh, for this shoulder and elbow talk. I know we're yeah. I'll let you I'll, I'll let you uh, take take the take the rain. I don't want to take too much of the thunder, but thank both of you for being here so much, and I'm really excited to get this shoulder and elbow um, citation classics uh, going. So again, thanks both of you for being here. Oh man, Thank, thanks a ton for having us. Um, I could not be more excited. Um, I think uh, Alexis and I are both uh, really pleased with what we put together. It's gonna be a great journey through shoulder and elbow surgery. Hopefully we'll uh, you know be able to give everybody a good overview of some of these papers, but I'll let Alexis, Alexis introduce herself first and then I'll introduce myself after. And uh, I guess we'll get started after that. Sure. Sounds great. Thank you so much again for having me. This is such an exciting topic. And I was really fun to go through the papers in kind of like a chronological order and see how far we've come in the last couple of years. That was really cool to go through. Um, for a little introduction, I'm Alexis Sandler. I'm a fourth year medical student at George Washington University, and I'm joining Dr. Scanaliato and his amazing colleagues at William Beaumont and Texas Tech next year for residency. Yeah, and we cannot be uh, more proud to have Alexis joining us next year. Um, uh, as everybody said, I'm John Scanaliato. I'm a PGY4 at William Beaumont, Texas Tech, down in El Paso, Texas. I'm currently applying to a shoulder and elbow fellowship, so this really cannot be more of an appropriate topic for us to kick off the Citation Classics series. And uh, just really happy and pleased and uh, just so uh, excited with, with what Dr. Cole's putting together here and ready to kind of rock going forward. So we'll get started here. We're going to go chronologically through the top five most cited articles as they relate to anterior glenohumeral instability. Now, I took a little bit of liberty in some of these topics in picking them, uh, or the papers, I should say, because just a few of them didn't really fit or they were really esoteric. So I, I really tried to, to trim it down to five just classic papers on glenohumeral instability. I'm going to cover three. Alexis is going to cover two, and we'll just kind of keep it going. And if uh, anybody who's uh, part of this little small team right now has any questions as we go, let's just stop and we'll keep it organic. But the first paper here is glenoid rim morphology and recurrent anterior glenohumeral instability. This is a case control study out of JBJS from 2003 by Sagaya et al. And we'll paint a little bit of the background on this paper. So Burkhart found out... Um, through his extensive experience in managing anterior glenohumeral instability, that there was this really high prevalence of glenoid rim lesions 
in patients with anterior instability. He had his landmark paper, the inverted paraglenoid, but the issue was that that paper came out before our cutoff of the year 2000. So it's not included in this uh, group of five, but it does really set the groundwork for what we're covering. So in 2003, if we take a little trip back in time, we had recognized that the loss of glenoid bone yielded poor outcomes after arthroscopic stabilization if you didn't augment this with a graft or some type of uh, bony reinforcement procedure. However, there was no quantitative method to describe these lesions. And if you had read through the literature at the time, there was a prevalence of these lesions that ranged anywhere from less than 10% to over 70%. So as you can imagine, whenever your range is 70% of uh, the known number scale, you're probably lacking information and lacking understanding. So the purpose of their study was to introduce a simple and practical method to evaluate the anterior inferior morphology of the glenoid rim and to relate this to glenohumeral instability. So the methods for this paper was that this was a consecutive series of 100 shoulders with recurrent anterior glenohumeral instability. The patient mean age was 24.3 years old. It was 66% male. And all patients underwent a preoperative humeral head subtraction CT scan. Patients who did not have an obvious bony fragment on their affected shoulder underwent a CT scan on the contralateral shoulder for comparison. And additionally, they recruited 10 healthy volunteers who had no history of glenohumeral instability. And as you can see here, they're setting the stage for their comparisons. One, do patients who have bony loss due to glenohumeral instability have asymptomatic or subclinical bony or osseous abnormalities in the contralateral side? And alternatively, the patients who have no instability at all, never had a history of it, what are their shoulders look like and what is their glenohumeral morphology when compared to these sick or affected individuals? They did exclude patients with bilateral pathology to kind of tease out any multi-directional instability. They wanted patients who were not globally hyperlax or um, kind of suffering that multi-directional component. They wanted true anterior instability. So their methods for the paper where they, uh, they graded the defect as either large, which was greater than 20% of the glenoid medium, which was five to 20% or small, less than 5%. And as you can see here in the diagram, this will be available both on the website and also uh, as a handout. It's based on the ratio of the bony fragment to a circle drawn from the inferior glenoid contour. So you do a best fit circle on the inferior glenoid, utilize one of the built-in PACS tools to calculate the area of the defect, and then you simply do a, a, a ratio of the two to get your size of the defect. What they found on for healthy patients is that there's no appreciable difference in glenoid morphology between the two sides. What you can see here on this slide in A is that the glenoid has a classic pear shape that is a pretty good circle inferiorly. We know that as we have glenoid bone loss, we get that classic inverted pear glenoid that Burkhart so eloquently described. But if you also look in B here, the anterior inferior glenoid has this nice little lip that really serves as a reinforcement and a buttress to anterior instability for the humeral head on the glenoid. It's important to remember if you're a medical student or a junior resident that we think about joints in terms of ball and socket or hinge, but the glenohumeral joint's a lot more of a golf ball on a tee and that it's a dynamic stabilization of the rotator cuff and the glenohumeral ligaments that really help to keep this ball centered on the golf tee. It's not a deep socket with a suction seal like the hip. It's, it's, it's a lot more dynamic and really we need a combination of osseous, ligamentous, and muscular stabilizers to really keep everything moving and working as it should. The results for the affected individuals, amazingly, only 10% of them had a normal glenoid. So 90% of people had some type of uh, osseous kind of stigmata of, of instability. On average, 7.7% of the fossa was affected it was large in 26.9% of patients, medium 10.6, small in 29%, and then 40% had an erosion or compression fracture. So if we look to the right here, we see in A, this little, uh, what would be calculated or classified as a small lesion uh, missing from the glenoid when compared to the healthy patient or a healthy glenoid in B. But when you look at this off FOSS, you can see that little compression just medial to the anterior inferior lip of the glenoid that's present in these patients with instability. And it's just due to this weaker bone along the neck of the glenoid that when there's an instability moment, it actually causes the bone to pooch out 
or kind of show this compression type fracture there, which is just really fascinating that unless you had been doing humeral head subtraction CTs in these patients, you probably never would have picked this up. As we would expect, as was kind of really shown in the West Point studies in the 90s, Bankart lesions were found in 97 out of 100 shoulders. So patients with recurrent instability, we know a Bankart and a Hill Sachs is a risk factor for recurrent instability, and this really drove that point home. And then the osseous fragment found in 45 out of 50 shoulders, they, were, they found them intraoperatively uh, that were classified as having a fragment on CT scan. So pretty, pretty predictive of finding one of these fragments. And then the, finally, the five fragments which could not be found were classified as small. So if a fragment is medium or large, you're probably going to find it. Small, probably not going to find it, or there's a slight chance you may not find it. So the conclusions for this first study, glenoid rim lesions are incredibly common following this anterior glenoid humeral instability. You get a bony bank heart in about 50% of patients, glenoid compression in about 40%, meaning that 90% of patients have some osseous sequela of this instability. The quantitative calculation of defect size is a reproducible method by which to classify these osseous defects and our fragments. And finally, standardizing our morphology and our understanding of it, as we'll see in the next uh, probably three papers, really guides surgical decision-making. At the time, they knew that bone loss was an issue, but they really didn't know what to make of it, what was large, what was subcritical, what even was critical. And this is really a first big step towards uh, really understanding. So in summary, this is one of the earliest papers to quantify the prevalence and degree of glenoid osseous injury following anterior glenohumeral instability. Further understanding of these morphological changes I kid you not, drives treatment and research for 20 years through to where we are right now or 19 years um, and really kind of set the stage. And that's why this paper with its, I think, 700 citations is really a citation classic for anterior shoulder instability. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is um, a paper that, you know, one of those landmark papers that you definitely because, you know, right now, a, 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 the way a lot of our treatment is guided is kind of based on the glenoid morphology. So even, you know, just having this paper and, and seeing kind of everything that is, yeah, I guess what we'll, we'll talk about in the upcoming slides, but everything that has kind of come through these and how it's guided treatment um, based on the glenoid morphology, especially in these patients that have recurrent uh, glenoid hemorrhoid instability. Super important. Awesome paper. Or awesome summary, too. It was a great summary you did. No, yeah, this was one that I was... Uh... Not surprised to see near the top, but really, um, I think after reading it and, and breaking it down, it's just, uh, it's awesome to, to read it again, especially with what Alexis is going to present next, because now we're really getting into digesting and breaking down anterior glenohumeral instability. And, um, and without further ado, I think I'll let um, Alexis kind of kick off what I think is just one of the best papers that Pascal Boileau ever wrote. And I mean, he has written some really great stuff. Absolutely. This was a super interesting paper for sure. So next up, we are discussing the case series by Boileau et al. Uh, in JVJS in his 2006 paper. The title is Risk Factors for Recurrence of Shoulder Instability After Arthroscopic Bank Heart Repair for anyone who's tuning in and not watching the slides. So for a little background, the initial rates of failure after arthroscopic stabilization compared to open stabilization were concerningly high, and early results yielded a 49% recurrence rate after arthroscopic stabilization using transglenoid sutures. So given these findings, the authors returned to open bank heart and abandoned the arthroscopic approach entirely. But four years later, they actually wanted to reevaluate the role of an arthroscopic repair using suture anchor anchors instead of transglenoid sutures. And Wolf et al. really pioneered this technique and subsequently described superior outcomes using the suture anchors. So with the improved technique of the suture anchor and the just and generally improved implants that decreased failure rates of arthroscopic bank repairs in general, the authors actually recognized that indications and contraindications for the procedure still remain very poorly defined. And with this in mind, they sought to, uh, to report the outcomes after stabilization done arthroscopically with suture anchors and use these outcomes to identify the risk factors for recurrence going forwards. So this retrospective case series ended up following 100 patients for a minimum of two years after arthroscopic bank heart repair. Patients were pretty young. The mean patient age was 22 and 87% were involved in sports, 44% of which were in what the authors considered high risk sports that involved either contact or throwing. And on average, patients experienced seven instability events prior to surgery. 
Patients were eligible for inclusion, had traumatic recurrent anterior instability that was treated with labral repair with suture anchors by the senior author. Patients with first-time dislocations, revisions, and voluntary posterior or multidirectional instability weren't included, so they could really just isolate the anterior instability patients. So, um, of course, shoulder hyperlaxity was determined by a clinical exam by the authors, and anterior hyperlaxity was present in nine patients and inferior in 26 patients. To assess bone loss, all patients had a preoperative CT scan unless they already had an MRI. And arthroscopic exams were, of course, performed in all patients. 49% had osseous lesions, so that's a pretty sizable chunk. While the authors didn't calculate a size for each lesion, the presence of a glenoid bone defect was defined as the absence of over 25% of the anterior glenoid rim. Bankart lesions were also present in a vast majority of patients, specifically 84%. And um, if you can, for anyone who is listening, if you can visualize the glenoid in your head to describe the glenoid defects, the authors divided it into uh, six 30 degree clockwise zones with A spanning from 11 o'clock to one o'clock and moving down the alphabet from there. So the most common uh, bank art lesion was in the BCD zone and 48% of patients had these. And on the humeral side, 84% of patients had Hill Sachs lesions. I just think this is such a great build up or build off of the previous paper because the numbers are wholly consistent with one another in terms of the, the what they're seeing and what they're experiencing. And, and I don't wanna steal your thunder, but um, what, what you're gonna present going forward. But it's really amazing that three years later, that first article we presented is still just so relevant and was so accurate. Their methodology was pristine and it really uh, it was nice to see. Absolutely, especially in the context that they had abandoned the arthroscopic pair for open um, since the results have been so low before that. So it's really interesting to see that they ended up kind of sticking with it and that the, the pathology was still the same beforehand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so a couple of just notes on techniques. The authors did use a standardized technique with three or four holes drilled into the glenoid rim between one and five o'clock. And there's a lot of emphasis in this paper on placing the anchors at the articular margin to recreate the glenoid concavity. So the goal of this is to rent the anchors um, from kind of like splaying out laterally and creating a flattened articulation surface. And pretty rapidly into residency, once we start getting you in the operating room, I'm sure you uh, experience some of these um, probably with your interview rotations, placing your anchors is crucial. And you don't want to get it too steep, obviously. You don't want to be too flat. But really, this is one of the critical portions of this case is your anchor placement. Because really, um, it can go wrong in a lot of ways if you're not paying attention and you're getting lazy and, uh, you know, savvy shoulder elbow attendings, the, the ones that I've thankfully been trained by are really critical about anchor placement. And again, 2006, they recognized that poor anchor placement didn't matter what you did beyond that. You weren't recreating the concavity and you were just setting yourself up for failure. Dr. Scaliata with the awesome insight as always. Um, and so in terms of their results, the authors did focus on stability, function, and subjective satisfaction. So recurrence, which they defined as dislocation or subluxation, happened in 15% of patients at an average of 17 months after surgery, with seven due to new traumatic, uh, seven occurring after a new traumatic event. Um, almost 10% did have persistent apprehension in the throwing position. Of the 14 patients with true recurrence, nine were successfully treated with Latterge and five refused further surgery. In terms of function, three quarters of patients returned to sport at the previous level of play. 17% had a lower level of play and 8% ultimately stopped sports overall. And then finally for patient satisfaction, 58% were very satisfied, 19% were satisfied, 12% disappointed and 11% dissatisfied. So overall, most in general were either satisfied or very satisfied. But the real mainstay of the author's results on this uh, focuses on the risk factors for recurrence. So the authors first performed a univariate analysis and they identified five key factors as risk factors for recurrence. Number one is the presence of a glenoid bone defect, which just as a reminder, was defined by them as a loss of over 25% of the anterior rim. The second was the presence of a large Hill Sachs lesion. The third was an attenuated inferior glenohumeral ligament. The fourth was anterior hyperlaxity. And the fifth was the use of three anchors or fewer. Uh, multivariate analysis was also performed, and that demonstrated that an attenuated inferior glenohumeral ligament, anterior hyperlaxity, or a glenoid compression fracture involving over 25% of the glenoid fossa led to a 75% recurrence rate with statistical significance. 
The authors also emphasize the importance of differentiating glenoid rim fractures with avulsion of a bone fragment from compression fractures without a bone fragment. The glenoid rim avulsion fractures were not correlated with recurrence while the compression fractures were on multivariate analysis specifically. So there are several important conclusions that we can draw from this study. One is that patients with glenoid or humeral bone defects are at a high risk for failure. Building on that, hyperlaxity in combination with glenoid bone loss is especially bad news for arthroscopic stabilization. With a strong capsule, an instability episode creates a fracture separation without stretching. However, a weak capsule elongates and fails to protect the glenoid room with recurrent subluxations, creating a compression fracture. On a different note, another major takeaway involves a stabilization technique, as the author's results suggest that at least four anchor points should be used regardless of the initial bank art size. And finally, very interestingly as well, all patients who failed stabilization and underwent not a latter day revision were successfully treated, suggesting this is an excellent revision procedure, especially for those nine patients. So in terms of what makes this article special, the biggest thing is it really is a seminal explanation on why arthroscopic stabilization procedures failed and the identification of anterior glenoid bone loss, a large hill sacs lesion, which we'll talk about later, so stay tuned, uh, soft tissue laxity and fewer than four anchors. The results further encouraged authors to continue arthroscopic treatment of anterior instability with improved methods for identifying appropriate candidates. Yeah, I think that was a great summary. And uh, one of the things that I just wanted to point out is that is that a lot of these patients, just like you said, had their recurrent episode 17 months after their initial uh, after initial injury. So, you know, almost a year and a half afterwards. So follow up is key. Uh, you know, a lot of patients do well for six to 12 months, but that's also good to note for when you're counseling patients about this procedure, or when somebody's going to have this, it, you know, that it is a possibility, but you know, this may not occur till, you know, a year and a half after you actually have the procedure, but um, great summary uh, yet again. Yeah, that was awesome, Alexis. Really, really nice work. Um, just uh, impressive too, being just a fourth year medical student and um, really being able to kind of digest through a paper like this. And I, I can't tell you how for medical students out there who are preparing for interview rotations or away rotations, if you're in a sports service and you're um, doing an arthroscopic stabilization procedure, you will be asked about this paper in some way, shape or form, whether it's under four anchors, whether it's what they found, what the risk factors were, but uh, Boileau is a, a king when it comes to arthroscopic stabilization. He still is to, to this day. So this is one that is completely fair game that you should definitely have an understanding of and really be ready to, to summarize and recite, uh, maybe not as detailed and eloquently as uh, student Dr. Sandler here, but just <laughs> with that level of understanding. But, but this one is, man, I've been fried on this one before in the past, and now it's uh, it's never going to leave my head. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> I have definitely gotten asked with the number of suture anchors, so definitely. Yeah, that's a that's a Fitzpatrick special right there, um, for <laughs> sure. He uh, He's definitely embarrassed me with that one uh, in front of a group, but all, all out of love. <laughs> so uh, the classic flow off of that uh, prior study is this next paper here, the Instability Severity Index Score. Uh, affectionately known as the ISIS, which I think back in 2007 did not ring as poorly as it does today, but um, we'll, we'll try to just rat out the whole name just to avoid uh, ruffling any feathers. But this is a simple preoperative score to select patients for arthroscopic or open shoulder stabilization. Uh, again, by Bolg and Boileau, uh, this is a case control study out of the British version of the jo uh, Journal of Bone and Joint from 2007. So building Upon right where we left off, Boileau et al. identified risk factors for failure following arthroscopic stabilization procedures. Even with improvements in anchor technology and technique, the work of Boileau and Burkhart and other researchers out of these large centers, the recurrent rate still was unacceptably high. Some reported 5%, which is great. 20%, though, in a lot of these studies, the author himself reported 15%. If you have a 15% chance of needing a second surgery or failing your surgery, it's a, it's a tough sell for a lot of patients, especially ones that want to get back to sport or activity. Um, multiple other risk factors since their study have been identified for recurrence to include age, certain sports, presence of bony defects, bilateral defects, but the thresholds and what these contributed to the risk of recurrence were not well specified. So the purpose of the study was to synthesize the preoperative risk factors into an instability severity score. 
and they wanted to grade the risk of recurrence to help guide the surgeon in formulating the ideal surgical approach, whether it was open or arthroscopic to address the, the shoulder instability present. So this was a case control study comparing patients with, with successful versus failed arthroscopic stabilization. The inclusion criteria uh, included recurrent anterior instability with or without hyperlaxity, arthroscopic bank cart repair, and a minimum of 24 months follow-up. As uh, Dr. Cole just mentioned, average recurrence rate prior was 13 months or 17 months. So you had to capture it with 24 months follow-up. If you had been a less savvy researcher and only had 12 months, you would have missed a ton of recurrence and it just really would not have been as dynamite of a study as this one is. They excluded patients with rotator cuff lesions, stabilization for first time dislocation, revision stabilization procedures, multi-directional instability or instability without uh, dislocation or subluxation. And then if the patient had a preference for an open procedure. So overall, really clean methodology and pretty meticulous uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria here. What we can see here for the methods is a, is a breakdown of their patients, and it's a lot to go through, but it was predominantly male. It was predominantly the dominant uh, extremity. Most, it was a kind of breakdown between dislocation, subluxation, or both. The mean number of episodes that these patients had were 17.9, so 15 subluxation events, almost three dislocation events. 84% had a traumatic first event, 84% had unilateral instability. And then we can see here that they broke it down by level of sport, type of sport, hyperlaxity, was a hill sacs present? Which view was the hill sacs present on? Was a glenoid lesion present? And did they have any evidence of osteoarthritis on their anterior posterior radiographs? They also uh, broke down the physical exam findings. How much translation was there? Was there a hill sacs or glenoid fracture? What was the appearance of the IGHL? Was there a slap lesion? And then uh, this was of course their diagnostic arthroscopy and examination under anesthesia to really give you what they found intraoperatively uh, as well. So overall, they had 131 patients with a mean follow-up of just under three years. The overall recurrence rate was 14.5% at a mean of 16.7 months. Surprise, surprise. Same authors doing good surgery. They had just about the same uh, recurrence time period. After their analysis, they identified six patient-centric risk factors. Age less than 20 at time of surgery, contact or forced overhead sport participation, competitive level of play, shoulder hyperlaxity, a superior hill sacs visualized in external rotation, and loss of inferior glenoid contour in the AP radiograph. If you look over at the right here, I have two select radiographic images just to show what these are. The one at the top is the superior hill sacs lesion, which is visualized in external rotation. And then uh, in the lower right, we can see the loss of the inferior glenoid contour in the anterior posterior radiograph, indicative of uh, bony injury secondary to instability. So what they did is they identified or they incorporated these uh, six identified risk factors into the instability severity index score, and then they uh, applied the score retrospectively to their same patient population. They found that scores greater than six had a 70% risk of recurrence, and they stated that these patients were better suited with a Bristow or a Ladder J procedure. A score of less than three had a 5% chance of recurrence, and a score less than six had a 10% chance of recurrence. So a massive infliction point in this curve at the score above six. They concluded that appropriate patient selection, as we've been talking about all night, is the next most important factor to sound surgical technique for successful arthroscopic stabilization. Obviously, if you do a crummy surgery, even if you have a perfect patient, you're still going to be setting yourself up for poor outcomes. The formulation of the scoring system, though, that's easy to calculate and based entirely on preoperative imaging and patient questionnaires was groundbreaking at the time. You didn't need to formulate an intraoperative decision and combine all of these variables together, but you could go in with a really good guess as to what type of surgical stabilization procedure you were gonna need. The only other risk score at this time was based off of the transglenoid suture technique rather than suture anchors. And as we know today, this has more or less been abandoned, uh, probably for the better, and that they just didn't have any objective information from which to draw conclusions on the ideal surgical plan. Existing risk scores also relied on post-operative factors, which really limited the preoperative utility, because what's the point of, of being able to predict someone's risk of recurrence when you've already done potentially the incorrect surgery? So what makes this special? This, the results here provided the framework for the instability severity index score, which greatly influenced surgical decision-making moving forward. 
They have applied this study to numerous patient populations to either uh, validate it or invalidate it, whether it's military, older patients, younger patients, certain athletic populations. And really, this was the first risk index for recurrent instability, which could be calculated solely off of preoperative variables. So we see here the um, questionnaire whether the age was less or greater than 20, whether someone was competing in competitive or recreational sport, the type of sport, the presence of hyperlaxity, if a hill sax is visible in external rotation, and whether there's loss of glenoid contour in the AP radiograph, it's scored out of 10. And we know uh, based on the findings, what, uh, what scores, that being six, predict rate of recurrence. I feel like this is super interesting, um, especially that, you know, it jumps from 10% to 70% uh, when you go from, you know, a score greater than six. And again, these are all things that, you know, you can, you give the patients their options, you let them know, you know, these are different procedures. So, you know, if we go with just, an, you know, this arthroscopic surgery, you can have up to a 70% chance of having this recur versus, you know, having a conversation with them and say, hey, you know, you will have many of these different risk factors, um, which lead you towards having a higher chance of recurrence, maybe this other surgical procedure, just like a ladder J or Bristow or whatever, the, you know, the technique may be, um, could lead you to a different, you know, different or better outcome. So a uh, really cool paper here. I actually hadn't read this paper before this, but I obviously heard of the score, um, but yeah, awesome paper. Great summary. And that's just a great point too. Oh, sorry, Alexis, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, so, sorry, this is so interesting in general. Um, I am curious, this one had a very unique thing in the methodology, not necessarily, it seems like studies are kind of split into doing this or not. Is there a benefit to distinguishing between dislocation and subluxation when you're defining recurrence? It seems like they analyzed them maybe separately at some points and then together at others, but other studies seem to combine them or analyze them completely separately. I think it's a, that's a really, really great, great question. And um, it varies kind of across the literature. And if you read any of the methodology for the anterior or shoulder instability papers, they're usually very clear in the methodology, what they choose to do and choose not to do. The issue I think with um, including too many patients who have a subluxation or subjective instability is that you get a lot of people that are voluntary dislocators and those have come to be pretty strict exclusion criteria moving forward. And they can, you know, they state their shoulder never feels stable. Um, and even in, if you do an appropriate stabilization technique in these hyperlax or voluntary dislocators, you're really setting yourself up um, for probably poor outcomes. But I think dislocation is important when looking at predictors of recurrence, because that allows you to really take a dive into the bony abnormalities. And that really is what we found really drives decision-making. So um, most studies now are pretty clear about whether they're going to include dislocation or subluxation. And I think really what it comes down to is, are you expecting an osseous type of influence in your study or outcomes or intervention, or are you not expecting the osseous morphology to have a play? Got it. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of osseous abnormalities and patients failing arthroscopic stabilization, I think we'll jump right into the next paper now. Yes, perfect. So this one is a 2007 technical note by LaFoss et al. And it was published in Arthroscopy entitled The Arthroscopic Latter-J Procedure for the Treatment of Anterior Shoulder Instability. And just in general, I cannot emphasize enough for medical students out there how helpful it is to read these technical notes. They often have incredible diagrams and just are very, very helpful in helping you understand a procedure. Um, so for a little background, when this article was written, arthroscopic bank heart repair was becoming increasingly popular, but even with advances in the surgical techniques, the risk of recurrence after the arthroscopic stabilization procedures never really made it to zero. As we discussed earlier, the latter J procedure was frequently used to treat patients with risk factors for recurrence after bank heart repair or with failed bank heart repair. And for even a little more background on the latter J, there are three main principles behind why it works. First is the increased glenoid diameter that creates kind of a bony block to prevent dislocation. Second is the conjoint tendon sling that limits anterior translation in the position of apprehension. And third is the repair of the capsule to a stump of the corrigoacromial ligament to further the joint stability. So the latter J was initially described in 1954, so it's been around for a minute. 50 years later, it did continue to be performed as an open procedure. So in 2007, this technical note serves as the first description of the technique and outcomes after arthroscopic latter J. The authors break down the procedure into five major steps. I will very briefly summarize, would highly recommend reading the paper though. 
Um, step one is exposure, which involves debridement and resection of the anterior labrum and middle glenohumeral ligament, followed by opening the rotator interval to access the coracoid graft. Step two is the coracoid preparation, where the lateral border of the conjoint tendon is debrided laterally and medially from the pec minor. Step three is the coracoid drilling and osteotomy. Two vertical holes are drilled eight millimeters apart into the coracoid and sutures are passed through to create what the authors refer to as a cable car for manipulation and transport of the graft. The osteotomy is then performed two to two and a half centimeters above the tip of the coracoid. Step four is the coracoid transfer. In this step, an antero-inferior portal is used to access the anterior rim of the glenoid. The graft is then mobilized through the subscap tendon and positioned on the anterior rib. And lastly, step five is the fixation of the bone graft. Notably, one guide wire and screw should be completely inserted before placing the second wire to prevent any unwanted distraction of the bone block. So the overall goal of this paper is to describe the surgical technique for an arthroscopic ladder J, but the authors did kind of throw us a little pearl um, and for how the 44 cases they did over a two year span went. So during this time, there were no neurovascular injuries or infections and to put it in their own words, and this is a quote, preliminary reports indicate excellent clinical results. The first procedure did take the authors four hours, but by the end of the two-year study period, operative time had decreased to 75 minutes. So for the major takeaways here, the authors show that patients undergoing ladder J can reap the benefits of arthroscopic shoulder procedures, including less scarring, better exposure, lower infection rates, and faster rehabilitation. The authors also describe scope manipulation through the various portals that enables excellent visualization, especially for coracoid positioning. And while there might be a learning curve as evidenced by the threefold decrease in operative times over the two-year course, this decrease coupled with broadly excellent clinical results suggests that this technique and its outcomes are reproducible. So in terms of what makes this study special, here we have the first published report on an all arthroscopic ladder J technique. On a much broader level, this study also showed surgeons that procedures that once required an open approach could potentially be performed arthroscopically, paving the way for future arthroscopic innovation. Yeah, I think that's just an excellent summary of, of this paper. I was torn on whether we should include a technical note in our uh, group of papers here, but I think that this one was just so groundbreaking. And they took what was a complicated, meticulous, open procedure and performed it arthroscopically. And just to be able to push the boundary like that and to show that procedures, especially when we're thinking about the mid to late 2000s here, Procedures which once had to be done open, you could do them with the power of the arthroscope and utilize smaller incisions and a theoretically lower risk of injury to neurovasculature, potentially lower risk of infection, all of these benefits of arthroscopic surgery. Uh, it's just remarkable to see. And additionally, as we've talked about tonight with knowing that bony augmentation procedures really are what's needed in certain patients with recurrent instability, that the, the topic switches from oh, you need a big open schwack to your anterior shoulder, X, Y, and Z. To, well, we still can do this arthroscopically and it's a big procedure and we need to make you know a few smaller incisions, but uh, no longer do you have to worry or convince a patient that they need uh, this big open procedure. And especially for patients that may have uh, other contraindications to an open procedure, it's nice to be able to have this uh, kind of tool in your toolbox. Absolutely. And I really respect too that the authors put in the time decrease and show that it is a skill that they were able to build. Um, and I think that's very encouraging for other people in just in general, in, in terms of like surgical innovation, um, to see that the four hours can be decreased to 75 minutes. That's very possible. Exactly. And the orthopedic literature now is kind of riddled with papers talking about um, risk factor, uh, you know, decrease in operative time and learning curves for various uh, procedures. Uh, and it's, it's really nice, like you said, yeah, that they came out and uh, it, it's nice to publish in 2007, though that you can say for your outcomes, uh, patients are doing good. And that's kind of, kind of all you need. Um, yeah, pretty remarkable. That, yeah, it'd be really nice to be able to do that nowadays. I think that journals are a little bit more stringent. But um, I thought that that was just a, a really um, just excellent overview of this paper. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I'm glad you thought to include it because it, it, it slipped my mind. But I think uh, medical students referring technical notes like this, like you said, it's great because A, you get pearls for the procedure. You have an understanding of what steps are going to be uh, undertaken in the, in the operative case. And it makes you look so much more prepared when you know what's going to happen next. And I always tell medical students that 
I don't expect you to know every single detail of a case, but if someone were to ask me, oh, what are the five steps of an arthroscopic lateral J, or if I were to ask a medical student that as we were preparing a case and they could outline those five steps that you so eloquently presented, suddenly I don't have any question that they prepared for the case. They understand what we're gonna to try to do. They can be predictive. And next thing you know, as a medical student, you're getting instruments in your hand and you're getting trust with part, trusted with parts of the case, which um, I think kind of goes a long way to really getting the most out of your rotations. 100%. So another great paper to finish up our day. And um, this to me is a paper that everybody needs to read at least one point um, during their residency and even as a medical student. And I think it's important to read the paper that this was based off of. As mentioned, it's not included because the uh, date that it was published fell out of our uh, history, which was only since 2000. But this is the evolving concept of bi bipolar bone loss and the Hill-Sachs lesion from engaging, non-engaging lesion to on-track, off-track. It's an expert opinion, Arthroscopy 2014 by the Giacomo et al. Um, Burkhart was on this paper. Burkhart wrote the original paper on the inverted Hill-Sachs and glenoid bone loss, or the inverted pair glenoid and the Hill-Sachs lesion, which was the engaging Hill-Sachs, and really started to uh, unwind what was going on with glenohumeral instability in the setting of bone loss. So they knew at this time in 2014, which isn't too long ago, that glenoid bone loss greater than 25% must be addressed with some form of glenoid bone grafting if you were to have a successful stabilization procedure. However, there were no clear guidelines on how to manage patients with bipolar bone loss, this is specifically a large Hill-Sachs lesion. So the purpose of the study was to provide expert opinion on how to appropriately conceptualize and manage bipolar bone loss. So bone loss, both on the glenoid and the humeral head side in recurrent glenohumeral instability. For people who haven't read any of Burkhart and his group's papers, they're brilliant. They write so eloquently, everything flows nicely. I'm probably gonna get uh, flamed for just how much I enjoy reading his writing, but he really is a gift to orthopedics. And if you want to break down any of the shoulder pathology that he's written about, you can do no wrong with reading his papers, whether it's the sick throwing shoulder, whether it's the inverted paraglenoid, or whether it's here, the evolving concept. He makes it easy to digest, and you really walk away feeling like you learned a heck of a lot about shoulder instability. So the technical note or their expert opinion, I'm sorry, started with some biomechanic um, overview, which I think is important to understand. So we have to remember that pressure is the force applied to a surface times the surface area. If we have an increased force, we get an increased pressure or we get a decreased area, we get an increased pressure. And we see this all throughout orthopedics. We know that bone loss then increases contact pressure. And if you don't restore this bone, the soft tissue repair must resist the overload of the bone soft tissue interface. You have glenoid bone loss and you're asking your repair to resist all this pressure to instability without bone there to kind of help shoulder this load. You're asking a lot out of your soft tissue repair. So Burkhardt and DeBeer championed this idea of significant bone loss. They first defined it by the inverted pear-shaped glenoid. And they found that you had a high risk of recurrence with a Hill-Sachs lesion that engaged on the anterior glenoid in a position of athletic function, namely abduction and external rotation. We'll show this in a few slides. They found that the traumatic bone defects caused failure versus insufficient soft tissue fixation. So these structural abnormalities were at a high risk of failure following Bankart repair alone. But even if you did the most meticulous repair following all of the principles that Boalo outlined, if you had bone loss, you were asking too much out of your soft tissue repair. So the idea of glenoid track was introduced um, originally or alluded to by Itoy et al. And they found that as the arm is raised, the glenoid contact area shifts from inferior medial to superior lateral um, of, the, of the articular surface of the humeral head. If you have an intract track, you have bony stability. Can't say that five times fast. At the distance from the medial margin tongue of the twister. contact area, it's a huge tongue twister. The distance from the medial margin of the contact area to the medial margin of the rotator cuff attachment of the humerus was 84% of this glenoid width. So what they were finding early on, or what Etoy and his colleagues were finding, is that the humerus rode on a very well-defined area of the glenoid, and that if you had loss of this part of the glenoid, your humerus was off track or falling off the glenoid, and then you were hoping that your soft tissue was going to be able to hold the humeral head on the glenoid. So Burkhardt and DeBeer introduced 
introduced this idea of engaging versus non-engaging hill sacks, which was when you had glenoid bone loss and you were in a position of athletic function, the hill sacks actually hit or impacted or engaged with this anterior glenoid where there was bone loss and it would engage on this and then cause the instability event. And then this engagement led to further and further bone loss because you had the humerus impacting the glenoid again and again and again. This idea of engaging and non-engaging versus on-track, off-track were completely consistent with one another. But the issue arose with how to determine which hill sacs engage. Could all hill sacs engage if you got somebody in a, the right position? Do all hill sacs engage? Is it not just a matter of when they will, but if they will, or if they will, when they will? So you can see in this image here in the lower left, you have the glenohumeral joint in a position of athletic function. The hill sacs lesion here is within the medial margin of the glenoid tract. So this is an on-track lesion. You have instability, which is intrinsically shared between the bank heart repair and bony support. But once you have enough bone loss or a large enough hill sacs, it's an off-track lesion. The humeral head has nothing to resist it osseously, anteriorly, and then you're relying on your soft tissue to help hold the humerus stable on the glenoid, which as you can imagine, sets you up for a disaster. We know though that the width of the glenoid tract decreases with bone loss. And if the medial margin of the hill sacs is within the glenoid tract, there is bony support adjacent to the lesion and is an on-track lesion. So how do you determine this? This was an uh, OIT question this year um, or similar to this year. I'm not sure if they're releasing the questions yet. And I may have just got myself on a wanted list, um, but you measure the diameter of the inferior <laughs> glenoid either by arthroscopy or from a CT, uh, 3D CT scan. And you determine the width of the anterior glenoid bone loss. So you have big D is the entire diameter and then little d is your glenoid bone loss. Then you calculate the width of the glenoid tract by uh, doing a multiplication of 0.83 times your inferior diameter and then you minus your bone loss. Then you calculate the width of the hill sacs interval, which is the width of the hill sacs lesion plus the width of the bone bridge between the rotator cuff attachments and the lateral uh, aspects of the hill sacs. And then if your hill sacs interval is larger or greater than your glenoid tract, this is an off-track lesion and it will engage in a position of abduction external rotation. If it's less than the glenoid tract, it's on track and not engaging. So what makes this special? Here we are. Glenoid bone loss greater than 25% must be addressed. And this is a paradigm shift based on anterior instability categories, whether someone is an on-track or off-track and whether their glenoid defect is a large glenoid defect or a small glenoid defect. And if it's still off track, you must address the humeral sided defects. So even if you do a bony or osseous augmentation procedure, if you are still off track, you must do something about the humeral sided defect. This is rare though, as Latterge usually renders the lesions on track. So what we can see here is they propose the following. Four groups based on glenoid defect and hill sacs lesion. And of these four groups, what you do? Small glenoid defect with an on track lesion, then cart repair. All the papers that we've read so far have led us to this. We know that without bone loss, if it's an on-track lesion, we're going to be fine with a bank heart. If you have a small glenoid defect, but an off-track hill sacs, meaning you don't have much bone loss, but still an abduction external rotation, you have a large enough hill sacs that it engages on the anterior glenoid rim, you do a remplissage to French to fill. You fill the infraspinatus into your uh, hill sacs. Large glenoid defect with an on-track lesion, you do a ladder J procedure. Large glenoid defect with an off-track lesion, you do this stepwise. You address the glenoid bony defect first with a ladder J, then you recalculate your track. And if it still engages, you do your remplissage to, or some type of humeral head uh, bone grafting to fill in your hill sacs. And that brings us to an end of the first citation classics for anterior shoulder instability. Must say, you all crushed it <laughs> per se. You know, I was sitting here uh, listening to this and like, oh man, yeah, that sounds that sounds about right. Like, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, you guys just crushed it. I, I'm super happy you guys are uh, involved. And uh, this was a great episode. Uh, again, you know, kudos to you all for going through these articles and summarizing very summarizing them very eloquently. And for those listening to this, there's actually a video to this as well that you can check on YouTube that they uh, put together these, these very nice slides. And so if you want to see some of these charts that they're referring to, you can check it out on YouTube as well as some of the pictures um, from, uh, from our Ladder Shade paper. So uh, great job with you guys and ladies, obviously. Thank you so yeah, much. It's just, uh, yeah. Thanks for having us. And um, it's just, it's just awesome to have a chance to do this and uh, especially just to, you know, to get a chance to, get some medical students, uh, especially one that I, uh, 
you know, will be a new intern of mine in just a few short months now, but just to really uh, get people to see what's out there in terms of literature and start to read this early, because I think, you know, we would both say that throughout residency, you, you have all these papers thrown at you, you never know what's important or what's not, but, um, you know, being able to digest literature and apply it and, and think and critically about it is just an important skill. And uh, you did great, Alexis. Um, I know I kind of put you on the spot just a, you know, a week or two ago and said, hey, we're recording a podcast, read these papers and get ready. But um, you, uh, you, <laughs> oh, no. this was you, awesome. you crushed I was it. So stoked to get it. I was so stoked to get that text. I was so excited. <laughs> That's um, what I'm talking about. No, for sure. And I think too, I mean, because I think there's so much emphasis on as a medical student at our kind of like much lower level is staying looking at current literature that sometimes we kind of like glaze over looking at historical literature and the actual classics, which is really important. So this is an awesome way to kind of get started with that. For sure. Yeah, this, these are the ones, you know, while you'll eventually, or you may be asked about the more recent literature on your away rotations or sub internships or whatever your medical schools call these rotations now, um, these are the ones that you, that are going to make you look well prepared and are going to be asked and are completely fair game and still show up on in-service training exam in some way, shape or form a lot of the time. Uh, it's very testable. And to this day, we're just refining the paradigm that was outlined in this most recent paper, but we haven't strayed too far from it. Maybe our idea of what critical glenoid bone loss is getting less and less, and we're getting a lot more aggressive about doing uh, bony augmentation procedures. But these five papers really set the stage for 20 years of research and surgery, which is, is pretty amazing to kind of summarize them all here and, and talk about them in just an hour. Well, again, y'all, I am uh, looking forward to the next episode of, um, you know, Shoulder and Elbow Citation Classics. Uh, excited to see what y'all have in store. Uh, again, great episode. I'm probably go back and listen to uh, you summarize this last article again <laughs> about the engaging and non-engaging and uh, on-track, off-track lesions. But again, uh, a great job. Um, and thanks again for, you know, hopping on and, and talking some orthopedics, talking some shoulder and elbow. And hope everybody that's listening, I hope they go and leave a review and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode and leave whatever comments that you have regarding any of these papers or go read and check out the papers as well. Um, so again, thank you all. And uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, hearing you next time and, uh, and some, some more shoulder elbow. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, we've got a shoulder arthroplasty one coming up and then a uh, uh, proximal humerus fractures coming up as well. I'm going to try to find a way to do rotator cuff. It's a little tough just because the literature is really so diverse, but uh, right. we've got some really, really great topics with just, again, uh, just some classic papers that I think are really going to, uh, you know, be great to listen to and discuss. And uh, hopefully everybody gets a lot out of this. And uh, as you said, if anybody has any feedback for us, please, you know, leave it on the site, give us a, you know, good rating. If you think it was great, and if we can improve, just please let us know. Uh, this is something that we're going to learn from and just try to make it better and better to help further everybody's education and love with the shoulder and elbow. I told you, didn't I? I told you that was absolute fire. They killed it. They destroyed it. That was a great episode. I hope you all enjoyed it and learned some more about anterior shoulder instability and kind of some of these citation classics. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Share this with one other person who would appreciate it. If everybody did that one time, that would totally help out a bunch. So go ahead and hit the subscribe button and until next time.